0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. author of wintering and the forthcoming enchantment and this is how we live now a podcast that looks for pathways through this post everything world each season we ask a range of wise people a common question and this time around we're asking how can we come back together again hi i'm Catherine. Well, it really has been a much more mild winter so far than I was ever expecting. In many ways, I suppose there's a lot to be grateful for in that, what with the price of fuel this year. But on the other hand, there's something uncanny about a warm winter. It should bite. I don't know whether or not it's an old wives' tale that more bugs go around when there isn't a hard winter to kill them off. It seems that way to me, though. And, of course, people who grow parsnips will be upset because they do need a good frost. I remember that from my granddad. But just in general, it's a disruption to the order of things as we know it and I am craving more walks in the whitened wood at midwinter it's one of my favourite things of the year but those days have been alarmingly scarce so far still I do keep coming back to my woods, and now at this time of year, all the ditches in the blena again, where they're empty in the summer, it feels like they're much more alive, they're breathing, they smell good. I wrote in my newsletter recently about the Welsh phrase, which I will not attempt in Welsh, Returning to my trees, which means roughly regaining your sense of equilibrium, finding balance again, reaching a state of calm. That's why I return to my trees over and over. They do that for me, literally and metaphorically. So, I was really excited to interview Jay Griffiths for this season of How We Live Now, where we're focusing on the question of how we can come back together again. I wanted to talk to Jay because her work has so often circled these bigger questions of how we live, how we as a society live and how we can compare ourselves to other groups to see if there are other ways to approach things. But I also knew that she'd bring a different kind of perspective to it as a storyteller, as a very intuitive soul, a deep thinker, An interconnected thinker, someone who makes connections between all of the broad aspects of this life. She's a bit of a writing hero of mine. So I do hope you'll love the conversation as much as I did. I'm off looking. For what last mushrooms of the year I can find. I'll be back with you a little later. Jay Griffiths is the author of a shelf full of era-defining books, including Pip-Pip, A Sideways Look at Time, Wild, An Elemental Journey, Kith, The Riddle of the Childscape, and Tristamania, A Diary of Manic Depression. Her most recent book, Nemesis, My Friend, explores the changing times we're living through. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you so much.
0: (laughs) I tried to give you quite the introduction because I'm such a huge fan of your work.
1: (laughs) That's so nice.
0: (laughs) But actually, I mean, I Our sort of governing question for this season is how can we come back together again? And although that's not necessarily the center of what you're writing about, you were one of the people who sprang to mind as someone who, in a way, is always talking about how humans can kind of operate, how human culture works, and how we are divided, and how we are similar. Is that a
1: a fair assessment? I think that's a great assessment. Yes. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of that wherever you look in different cultures around the world and at different times in history, is that you see the same needs, you see the same wishes. Um, Mm. But one of the greatest commonalities is the great commons of the natural world. You know, and this is what makes modernity, or at least the dominant culture, so weird is that it's like everybody has always agreed that that is at the heart of the all the everything mm. and what the dominant culture has done is to kind of say no 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 it's like nature's just a hobby you might like climbing mountains well that's just that's just what you like doing mm. and I totally agree climbing mountains is a hobby it's one of my hobbies but the whole of the natural world this living breathing thing that gives life to everything not just what is green but everything in culture, everything, you know, there is nothing that doesn't depend on the natural world. Nothing, apart from obviously going to Mars and, you know, those who want to go to Mars. <laughs> I, my personal feeling is they should pay for themselves a one-way ticket and good luck to them.
0: <laughs> They're very welcome to Mars.
1: <laughs> They're welcome to Mars. The, the, the You know, the rest of us is like this precious place where we live. This is it. This is the glorious, beautiful it so, yes, I am interested in the, the deep commons of it all mm. um, and the commons, you know, the human spirit, this kind of, you know, this thing that we also have in common, which, again, is so damaged and hurt by what passes for modernity, the dominant culture. Yeah, And these things, of course, are connected. It's like this is where, you know, the human spirit feels best and strongest and most vibrant is where it is, where it stands in relation to the green and wild world.
0: And natural knowledge uh, has almost become rarefied now. It's become a kind of specialist subject, whereas once it would have been Mm. ordinary, you know, to name the bird songs or to... Mm be able to identify the plants in the hedgerow, that would have been totally unremarkable. Unnecessary. Yes. Well, yeah, necessary. Unremarkable because it was the stuff of everyday life, because it was part of Mm. how people lived. And so it would have been unimaginable not to have been able to name that stuff. Uh, Mm. But now it feels like the sort of business of a separate class in this country, almost. It feels... Like it belongs to a group of people and not to everybody, yeah. I think,
1: yes, yes, I think you know part of it is is you know the all the great work of the right to Rome movement and um, mm. Nick Hayes spearheading you know, literally writing the book of trespass yeah. about saying you know the 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 land is what we hold in common. this is you know it belongs to all of us, even if in fi- in strict financial terms. The vast majority of the land belongs to a tiny number of people. But we need it. It's us. You know, this is this is the gym. This is the kind of, you know, this is the temple. This is kind of what we need for psychological health, for physical health. Mm. And yet we are just given access to like the tiny, scrawny little paths. And even then, <laughs> they're so often closed. Yeah.
0: And you write a lot about Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous ways of being and how they're threatened. It feels as though we in the West are a, a very long way away from that kind of knowledge and understanding now, certainly in the UK.
1: Mm. I think the thing is, there's a real issue about um, this thing of being Indigenous, because on the one hand, I feel really strongly that we, we you know, we all have a birthright to feel indigenous, not by race. This has nothing to do with blood, race, blood and soil. But we have a birthright because we're born human onto this earth, into this world. And there's a really nice expression, the indigenous human being, which I really like and support. And at the same time, (laughs) there are really, really good reasons for saying that the laws that protect, that specifically outline, define and protect indigenous cultures, within their own countries as being people whose um, land and languages have been stolen from them, whose culture has been undermined, that where there are places where these people, these societies have been given special protection, that is absolutely vital. But I think there's there's a strange sense of... um, jealousy that I noticed, particularly after I wrote Wild, which was a lot to do with how Indigenous cultures around the world see, you know, the commons of their own land. There were some people who were just, frankly, racist and it was just kind of, you know, what do Indigenous people matter, which is vile. But it's like, it's simple, it's vile, and you throw it away. But there was also a strange jealousy by people who felt that they weren't Indigenous but they wanted to be. Mm. I find that really fascinating because it's like I think it's it's a yearning and it's a yearning to be able to name the world to know the world as you say to kind of like yeah. see in the hedgerows to it's a yearning to understand the connections between things and that you know that and those connections they are the life on which we depend it's kind of you know without insects no us it is that simple. But that sort of yearning for an indigenous kind of identity, it's sort of on the one hand, very problematic, and on the other hand, sort of oddly quite sweet. Because I think <laughs> what it says is that people want to feel that they belong with no hindrance to the living world. And we do. Mm. And we do. But as soon as we... as non-Indigenous people start using the term like Indigenous Britons, you get yeah. very, very, you get dangerously close. Yeah. It gets it yeah. gets sticky as blood and soil very quickly. Mm. So it's something that we have to be, you know, it's a very problematic term. But the wish, it's like, what could be better than people saying kind of, you know, I want to feel the earth, the sand, the ice, the leaves. The, I want to hear the birds. I want to be immersed in... Whatever land it is that you love.
0: Mm, that desire for connection is is so strong and it, it's I think it's I'm not sure how to put this in a way, but it seems to me that we are in a process of coming to terms with a loss that we've been sustaining over centuries now. Mm. And we're maybe finally realizing on a on a bigger scale that we've strayed so far away from that kind of that way of knowing that way of being in the world and that's hugely linked to for me to colonialism because mm. i think we spent a lot of time as i'm talking as like a you know white british person here like defining ourselves against the people that had culture you know and that we found that rather silly and a, a bit weird and a bit uh, like the word backwards used to, I mean, in my childhood, certainly the word backwards was definitely commonly used. And mm. it's finally catching up with us, not only how like terribly oppressive and violent and and awful those systems were, but also how cultureless we feel and what a loss we sustained when we thought we were better than having this thing called culture
1: i think that's really interesting there's a th- there's a whole side of the history of ideas, which suggests that culture is opposed to nature. Right? Yes, that's so, right. yeah. so you've got this kind of sense of um, societies that are land-based, earth-based societies, that they are, quotes, nature, and quotes, we are, quotes, culture. i have going to stop yeah. using this quote marks, but you know what I mean. So, it's just so <laughs> hard on a podcast, isn't it, to use quote marks? I know, marks? <laughs> I know. But the thing, is, the thing is, the word culture is actually related from cultus, which is like to do with the cultivation of plants. Plants is that mm. linguistically and historically, culture and nature have always been intertwined. And it's also if you take nature out of culture, you know, if you take all the kind of birdsong out of music, if you take all the animals out of literature, you take the wolf out of Wolf Hall. What you, you, you know, what what you end up with is like a couple of dreadful memoirs and a tax return. We have had <laughs> nature intertwined <laughs> with um, with culture. Absolutely at every single point. I think it's also interesting to sort of say that you know that one of the first ways in which the sort of the colonialism that you're talking about, I'm speaking from Wales, I'm part Welsh and I mm, live here mm. with absolute pleasure and delight. One of the things that's interesting is that um in the some of the earliest pieces of colonialism when England took Wales as a colony, took Ireland as a Mm. colony, effectively Mm. treated Scotland as a colony, is that um, the culture that was embedded in, in the lands, in the Celtic lands, was just as deep, just as profound as the Roman and Greek cultures, what, what the, the kind of, the, you know, the dominant societies then said was, oh, it's the Romans and the Greeks. And they kind of made them into these enormous things that had to be kind of, you know, taught and learned at school. And you had to kind of like master the difficult spelling and you had to know your Poseidon from your, from yeah, your, yeah. You, you know, uh, <laughs> Hermes. <Yeah. laughs> and then, and then, um, but in fact, it was, you know, we had those gods, we had the gods of the wells and the kind of, you know, the gods of the, the woods. Mm. We had that, but it was dismissed. I think also that, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody that kind of, that is interested in saying that this is about the past versus the present. That's a very easy way to, you know, to um mm. talk about it. And it's not really what I think. I think that there's a sense of the permanent connection that the human heart has with the natural world. It's like the, the permanent and enduring sense of shamanism, even in cultures which appear to have lost it, is that you take the human mind, lean it up against the earth, and what you get shamanism every time. <laughs> it didn't start in Siberia and spread like the kind of religions of the book spread. It started right under our feet. interpreted by the mind speaking through the birds and the bears and the eland and everything 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 because everything speaks and i think that sort of that in the context of connection i think this is one of the most important things is that in that terrible pandemic and the way in which people felt often either so claustrophobic with just a tiny handful of other people, or so mm. terribly, terribly alone. I Lonely, was definitely yeah. in the latter category. You know, yeah. I was living on my own. there was, you know, it was ex- it, it was a very, very hard time. But one of the things for myself and so many people is that when the human voices were forced to be a little bit quieter, what did we hear? We heard all the voices of nature that mm. you know audibly the bird song came back louder. But People started noticing and caring and having time for the, the mindedness of nature. And in a sense, I think that that is a beautiful thing that's come out of lockdown, is people's sense that, yes, disconnected from each other as human beings, what so many of us did was we were put, first forced to and then welcomed that sense of that this is the deep connection that's around us all the time it's here yeah it's we had to be separate here.
0: to feel that connection
1: but yeah you to, lost... just kind of it's... separate to miss it and then to yeah
0: hear it. yeah to, to yeah to, to feel the pull of it almost but you lost your dad during the lockdown and and you know yours was one of those terrible funerals that were you know not possible it to didn't even happen. attend it didn't yeah there, yeah there, there wasn't one yeah and so mm-hmm. I mean, you've long written about ritual, and you talk about it in in nemesis as well and you you said I, I wrote down the quote, but you said in lockdown, there were a million missing rituals mm. um, and the sense that ritual had already kind of slightly dried up before then anyway. Mm. What was your experience like, first of all, of not being able to mark that hugely painful and monumental moment in your life?
1: It was really weird. It's like that, 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 um, it's kind of, it made death into not death, but disappearance. Mm. Um, it, it was a really bad time. The one thing that I did do, though, was that, um, I decided that I would a funeral for one and I went to the most beautiful little stream near me and um, I took a candle I picked a couple of flowers and I lit a joss stick when I was there and I just sat and remembered all that I could that was the best of him Mm. and all that deliberately or by mistake he taught me (laughs) Right, yeah. And so I had a funeral for one. It was like I lit the justice so it was kind of you know that showed the kind of the weaving of the air. I lit the candle that was fire, the flowers represented the earth, and the stream was the water and that's what you need. you need the elements that's all you mm-hmm. need really for Richard, mm-hmm. but I think that What what it started me thinking of is that way that ritual has also become a kind of privatised thing. It's that it belongs in a church or it belongs to the state, like the ritual of the Queen's death, that it belongs to somebody other than yourself. And it made me feel, for all its incredible simplicity, it made me feel a kind of a very lowly power, which Mm. is a bit of an oxymoron. But, like, yeah, I made it up. Because what else was there to do? Made it up, and I think that um, that rituals that say I'm marking this moment, however apparently poor that ritual is—no pomp, no ceremony, no other person—even so, it held its own as a ritual. And then you know, and then also, it's like I think I have quite a soft spot for rituals, and I don't mean. (laughs) I mean, Eve, I don't like the word. I don't like the I, word. I, I like that's the word all.
0: soft spot. That's all. I was <laughs> <I'm still
1: laughs> that That's just yeah. such a lovely phrase. I've love, got I a soft spot an, for ritual. <laughs> I have got a soft spot for yeah, ritual. Yeah, me too. And I think the thing is that one of the things I find very interesting is that there are rituals which people do at certain times of the day. The mornings are always more ritualized. For, well, always, I say. Mm-hmm. How do I know? But for most people, if they do things in a ritual kind of way, in a patterned way, because you know, because you could say it's just habit, but I think that rituals are like augmented habits that quite often it's the mornings when people will do the same things they'll get up in the same way they'll drink the same tea or coffee they'll Mm. shower and especially women they're kind of you know the sort of quotes beauty ritual thing That it looks skin deep I don't think it is I think it's quite a transformative thing is that you you know you go into the bathroom with your kind of like sleep face on and you're very (laughs) intimate day you know your your intimate kind of face which is just for you and the cat and whoever is in your household and then you come out of the bathroom and it's like there you are you have your mask on you might you know if you use makeup but it's kind of like even the things of brushing your hair and brushing your teeth and just getting ready is that you feel prepared afterwards when you went before it's like this is how you can start your day breakfast is usually the most ritualistic of meals people vary their breakfast much less than they vary other meals
0: Yeah. dinner yeah yeah and i've always yeah. i've always kind of felt uh, very grateful in a, our culture that i have a like a kind of permission to make myself anew every morning you know i do put on makeup in yes. the morning even when i'm working on my own from home because yeah it feels like a transformation into the day, like in, into yes. the, into work and into grown grownup, almost. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I feel like, like I'm that. playing, you know, like I'm putting on my mum's oh, high yeah. heel shoes almost. But
1: yeah, it's it's actually meaningful. It is. I do that. I do do that generally. But what I also do is that if I've got a day with a lot of admin. I hate admin. We all do. (laughs) Me too. But sometimes it just builds and builds and builds. And I look at it and I go, okay, I can't deal with this in my usual way, which is one quick hour in the afternoon and see how much I can do. So what I do is that I um, get my assistant to come in. My assistant is called Sincerely Sally, right? She can can be there within three minutes of my asking her to come. It's amazing. She is really efficient, friendly helpful she hasn't got a creative bone in her body which is brilliant because I don't I just want (laughs) to do (laughs) the admin now the (laughs) thing is the reason why Sally can sincerely Sally can be here so quickly is that all she does is she puts on one of my dresses one of my pairs of boots (laughs) one of my jackets and red lipstick that I don't wear Uh, but I do have in the cupboard so she's obviously she's just a sub personality but i like sub personalities yeah. it's i think it's quite helpful so that's a little ritual that kind of creates a different in you know, a different part of my writing yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually I got, I do I do think we're craving oh she plays golf as well it's oh stressful. my goodness I she's amazing yeah. can I borrow yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, <laughs> yes you can that's the beauty of her it's like she's just fantastic Anybody <laughs> can borrow her.
0: I am um, I actually I go somewhere else to do my admin if I've if I've got a load of admin to do I take myself to the co-working space down the road and other people oh, are busy there, good. and it makes me feel like I have to That's also concentrate, and I can't like fiddle with anything. You know,
1: <laughs> I like that <laughs> it's a lot. Really good.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, but I I think more generally about ritual that we're like it needed to be remade because we'd got to a place where where our kind of existing rituals had gone very stale and yeah. they were out of date and they were excessively formal and they'd put us all off really from wanting to take part and i mean i've i've ended up writing about ritual a lot the last few years because people keep asking me about it and i i've come to think of good ritual like useful ritual as something mm. that's actually fairly neutral like it's a set of behaviors that you can invest whatever comes to you at that moment in so you just bring the the actions, and you might even need to wait to see what feelings arise. You might, you know, like we're so rushed all the time anyway. You might not even know what mood you come to the ritual in or what baggage you're carrying into it. But if you have a, a set of actions to carry out, then you're inviting the meaning in you know the meaning makes itself like it, i think i think in the past we've imposed too much meaning onto the ritual like we've said you'll yes. do this and it represents this and you will feel like mm. this you know like I, that's what i remember from school but you know um, it is easter and therefore you'll feel sad you know et etc cetera, etc cetera. um but actually r- rituals actually neutral you know it's a container that we hold other things in.
1: I th- I think that's perfectly put. I think it's perfectly put. I think it's also that there's a strange thing with rituals is that sometimes it really is like, you know, the oldest, longest ones that have enormous profundity just because of their age. And at mm. the same time, sometimes if you work out your own ritual for something, it's not that it gives it more meaning, but it gives the ritual a very specific sense of seeking to create a container mm. for your own specific feelings and also for that specific day yeah and the specific time yeah so i think creation of rituals is, is a beautiful thing to do
0: mm. it's it's the seeking that that matters almost it's and 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 i think we need to learn to seek out that space again you know to to make that even tiny bits of time like it it doesn't it doesn't have to be long, you know, it doesn't have to be three hours with yeah. incense and multiple costume changes. Like it can be, yeah. it can just be a moment. It can just be like I, yeah. you know, before I uh, yeah. recorded my podcast, I always light a candle because it's, I'm changing yeah. the space, like I'm changing my mode yeah. and I'm, you know, saying it's important. Yeah.
1: Yes. Mm. Yes, I mean it's a way of kind of you know it's a way of directing one's own mind, which is something that it seems really obvious that we all have a human mind and therefore have the right to direct it where we choose. (laughs) But there isn't there's an odd way in the kind of in a society which is dedicated to to trying to get people's attention. So your attention is is in effect up for grabs. It's kind of for sale. Mm. It's an assault on on the attention which makes people, I think, less, less practiced, not less able, but less practiced in mental sovereignty and mental sovereignty where you choose what you are going to think about. And then you think about it, <laughs> where you yeah. choose what your attention is going to be directed towards. And it's not just about focus, it's not just attention like that, but it's it's about attending, it's about listening to certain things. But most of all, it's that you retain control over mm. where it's going, what avenues it's stepping towards, rather than it being a very, you know, a passive and easily manipulated thing as it is on the internet. And of course, I'm as prey to this as anybody, you know, oh, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. This morning, it's, as, it, as it happens, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know we, the, we both the, jumped onto this completely disrupted, didn't we? Let's face it. Yeah, t- today is the day that that the, uh, the, the British
0: that our beloved British, prime minister's
1: um, shortest-serving <laughs> prime minister ever. Resign. She's going to be and so obviously with the signs were there. I know we were delighted, but of course, I mean, <laughs> I mean every right-thinking person is when I say right, I mean yeah. correct, not right, has not it? So, and in fact, most of them thought she should go as well, which is yes, hilarious. Yep but, they did, yeah. <laughs> so. so so, all morning, although I was directing my mind in certain ways, but I also was aware that it was being kind of beguiled upon by my own curiosity and leaving kind of, you know, leaving various websites open on my computer. I computer refreshing. So, I was a that refreshing the screens know, happening in my know, house this morning. <laughs> I know. I know, I know. I don't think I've ever refreshed something so much, ever. But yeah, so yeah, it's not that I'm immune to that thing of being distracted. I'm very distractible. It's not that. It's just that I also think that the practice of directing and controlling your own mind Mm. and retaining mental sovereignty is vital.
0: It's really important. We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. But first of all, We know how hard it is to find new podcasts, and we thought you might love this one.
1: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach and host of Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing amongst life's many other demands. Join me as I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about their work and, most importantly, how they get the work done. Writing can be a lonely pursuit, especially when you're juggling other work, parenting, caring, a disability. So join us each Wednesday to hear how other writers from backgrounds of all kinds make it work.
0: This is a great moment to bring in Nemesis, um, and to, <laughs> I, because it feels like she's a little bit in action today. Tell us about <laughs> maybe I don't know, or is that hopeful? Tell us about Nemesis. Who is she, and what does she, why is she really important?
1: <laughs> okay, okay, here we here we are. The thing with Nemesis is that people always think that she's, um, you know, like the goddess of vengeance. That she's um, that she wants retribution. That she's cruel. Mm. Um, that she's an enemy. And in fact, she's incredibly important in the in the widest sense of justice. She's the goddess of Greek myth whose role is to give people what they are due. Right. This yeah. is about justice. It's about balance. So she looks at people's actions and effects on others, and then she assesses the cost of it. Mm. And also, where humans display an arrogance towards the gods, nemesis steps in. She's often pictured as a beautiful woman with bold white wings. But what she ensured is that people had a balance of happiness and sadness, an equal measure of good luck and bad. It's interesting that you know that that one of the things that's so important about her is that she sets limits. And this is an age which detests limits, as the libertarian Tories have kind of, you know, so appallingly demonstrated. That, you know, that the, they think that kind of, you know, the natural world will limitlessly give the kind of you know ridiculous idea of endless financial growth without limit. Yeah. The thing about Nemesis is she said there are limits, is that you know that when it comes to something like climate change and the ecological emergency, is that this is a lesson of metaphysics, a lesson of ethics taught in physics very directly. We kill the insects, we kill Mm. ourselves. Mm. We kill the bees. Everything has a knock-on effect. Everything has a knock-on effect. So we need her. We, We need this goddess of balance and limits and justice. So when I've titled the book Nemesis, My Friend, that's
0: why. <laughs> yeah. And there's a sense in your book that Nemesis is maybe, I don't know, not not in as much operation as we need her to be at the moment in some ways, mm. you know, that she's maybe a bit confounded by the, the trickster-ish nature of our contemporary politicians, mm. That it, that somehow that we're eluding her grasp a bit at the moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny one. I mean, I suppose what I'd say is kind of like, it's just there. It's kind of, you know, it's not that I believe in a god or a goddess of anything. I don't. But what it is, is that the principle and the principle of limit is just there. The effects of crossing the line and of the numerous anti-ecological transgressions for some people in the world, they are already here. They're already here. People are suffering terribly. It just yeah. doesn't happen to be all that many of people in kind of wealthier countries. This, this is one of the devastating injustices of the whole climate change effect is there are people who are suffering from the limit breaking of the wealthy mm-hmm. minority, the majority world is and will suffer. And it will come to all of us. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the heat wave was a case in point is that that was so interesting. It was like that was clear. All the limits of temperature were absolutely breached. Mm, and mm. I don't know about you, but, you know, my usual thing with sunshine is give me more. <laughs>
0: <I> <laughs> no, I'm the opposite. I'm always hiding
1: sunshine. from it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm solar powered. I just love sunshine. But even, even for me is that those days were sinister they were absolutely mm-hmm. sinister because nothing felt right nothing felt okay nothing no and still
0: now i mean we're we're speaking at the end of october the woods are still drier than i would expect them to be at this time of year they don't smell yeah. right they're not behaving in a way that i would normally expect them to like they they yes. do not feel okay
1: yes Yes. It's
0: it's more than those just those summer days, you know.
1: Yes, 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 absolutely. Mm. Yes. I mean, there's a drought declared in Wales. I mean, it's yeah. like a contradiction in terms, but there has no, been it's
0: extraordinary. One of the I, I would love you to pronounce the Welsh word for me. Is it here here? Here <laughs> say it for here, me. Like for right. homesickness or here say it. here right. Hereith. Right. Okay. So you talk about this concept of here, which is similar to homesickness or or yearning for familiarity?
1: It is, but it's famously a word that can't be translated into English Mm. in one word. Um, It's similar to um, saudade in Portuguese, which I hope I pronounced that right. Um, (laughs) Yes, I never know that one, yeah. But what it is, is it's like a longing and a yearning. It's for something that it, it, it could be home as a place but it's also it's it's got a feeling of the past it it's a it's it's an ache it's something also for something that might not be it's a subtle longing and missing and yearning yeah which is like homesickness
0: and I think we are beginning to feel that very commonly now I think it it, that 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 word might explain some of what we're experiencing as a whole society this this sense Mm. of home being suddenly elusive and, and we're not sure if it's gone forever or not right now
1: well some of it I mean honestly you know sometimes it makes me so angry the way that the right to have a home Mm-hmm. Every animal has a right to a home and, you know a hare a rabbit a badger a squirrel a bird and so do humans it's like our animal bodies need homes it's in the human rights act the right to a home is in the human rights act and yet we've got a situation in britain which just makes me cry with anger where people have second homes, third homes, fourth homes, you know, the where, where a house becomes a property and it's something which is an investment and, mm. you know, and then you've got the kind of, you know, the, the huge number of properties in, I <laughs> said it myself, houses, <laughs> homes, Your properties, yeah, in yeah. central London that are basically dead, you know, they've been, they, they've been bought, swallowed up as investments, so-called opportunities. And, People are homeless and, mm. you know, some of that homelessness is clear. It's obvious, like, you know, people s- sleeping on the streets. Some of it is just incredibly painful. The homelessness of sofa surfing, the homelessness of sharing, you know, sharing a very overcrowded house. The you, the situation where people really, really want to be able to start a family and cannot because mm. they cannot. Because they can't make the space, cause, yeah. Because they can't make the space. The a the permanence, of mine, yeah. Yes, or the permanence, and the, and a friend of mine from a village in Dorset, and all four of her grandparents were from there. She was a Dorset maid from that area. She'd been working in development in um, Nepal. And um, she was going to have a baby and she wanted to come back and have a baby mm. at the place which was her home. There was nowhere that she could buy. There was nowhere that she could rent. Everywhere was a second home, everywhere. And yeah. she ended up having her baby in a cow shed, <laughs> in a cow shed. And it's I biblical. just, it, it's biblical. And it, honestly, I felt so protective towards her. And I just wanted, I wanted everybody who had a second home to know that she had her baby in a cow shed because she couldn't get the home.
0: And on an even more diffuse level, I mean, I live in Whitstable where, again, we have lots of second homes, lots of holiday homes, lots of empty homes, honestly.
1: Lots of Airbnbs. Lots of Airbnbs.
0: And, you know, like, you know, the the town relies in part on tourism and, uh, you know, I don't object to that. But the problem is that there are many families who have lived in Whitstable for a very, very long time, who can no longer live in Whitstable because they're not wealthy because it's pushed yes. house prices up so yes. far. I mean, I yes. certainly couldn't move here now. Um, yes. That actually, the ordinary, the ordinary people who've always lived here can't live here anymore. Yeah, and it's that's the we're just at this point where ordinary people, like people with just everyday jobs, the jobs that we desperately need people to do, can't make enough money to survive, can't live anywhere, can't save for a pension. You know, like there's like, Mm -hmm. we haven't accounted for this group of people who make up the majority of our society and, and what do we think that we can live without nurses or that we can live without cleaners mm. you
1: know <laughs> mm. it makes no sense well it's also it, it, it's also the the whole issue of the younger generation is that mm. um that one of the things you know in that sense of what connects us as humans one of the things that all societies all through history have held in mind is that the adult generation protects the younger generation. At yeah. every point in life, you put the younger ones ahead. You know, mm-hmm. they're the mm-hmm. ones that, that have to be looked after and thought about. And what's been happening in the last few couple of decades for the younger generation, it's, it is absolute. I mean, it's, it's, it's unhallowed. It's absolutely unhallowed to put a generation into a situation where they probably can't get a home of their own. They're probably going to really, really suffer with kind of overpaying terrible rents. They're probably also paying for an education that should have been free. That won't serve them anymore. And, And so they're walking into their adult life absolutely submerged in debt. And then, on then, we say oh, by the way, we fucked up the climate for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so you don't have a home in the sense of your personal animal body, but you also don't have a home in the sense of the sheltering sky, that which will be steady and protective. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it's beyond a crime. I mean, it's like that. I can only think in almost religious terms for it. This is That's what sin looks like. Yeah.
0: So big sigh um <laughs> <laughs> that was a rant wasn't it that was no rant, well I know I'm, I'm very glad it's not, of it. yeah this is where we are right because we are imbued I think as a whole society now except for a very few people who are, are so obviously out of touch that uh, you know that we can almost discount them but we're imbued but they're, with in power. This in, they're in power I know I mean I, I can't Sorry even begin that. to skim on like how that works but yeah, absolutely. And it, it just doesn't seem to, to make any sense to me that we would elect anyone like that. But but there we go. Apparently we do.
1: But it makes a lot <laughs> of sense if you consider the role of the media. You know, the way I see it, most people are good. Most people are reasonably kind. Most people are reasonably honest. And most people, if they had the power, would probably handle it reasonably well. But when people are lied to repeatedly over and over again through the media, not just about what is an an absolute lie, but the lies of omission, what people are not told mm, about mm. the climate and ecological emergency more than anything. So people are lied to, and then they vote according to the lies. And I don't hold the person who is lied to responsible. Mm. I hold responsible those who tell lies and who fail to tell the truth. That's right. There's another rant. You can't stop me now, can you? No, no, I, I've wound you up and I'm
0: going to let you go. Um,
1: <laughs> Sorry. But, but no, but, th- but this is, I think, I think what you're
0: capturing is how so many of us are feeling. It's this sense of utter despair and of lostness and fury and homesickness and anxiety, like all rolled into yeah. a big ball. And my mm. question for not just for you, but for both of us to discuss. Really, is what the hell do we do now? <laughs> like, where do we go? Mm. What do we begin mm. with to start to recover the sense of home that that we deserve on, on so you know on symbolic and practical levels?
1: Mm, mm. Oh gosh, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that the everything? that <laughs> some of it is kind of that thing of don't feel alone. With it. Mm. I think that's incredibly important. Is that for so long housing has been treated as if it's a private problem. You know, it's just your problem that you haven't got the money together for, you, you know, for for a down payment for a mortgage. It's just your problem that you can't afford the rent because it's kind of like you know eighty percent of what you can earn. It's just your problem. And one of the most important things is turning these things instead of being you know private. Anxieties into being public anger because collectively we're better. I think that education about everything is important. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, like I will, I will, I will try not to echo Tony Blair, but obviously, it's like ed- education, education, education is a great antidepressant. You know, learning something new is always really, really good for the brain. But it also that's where the sense of the politics that we're in now starts to connect with some aspects of the history of thought. And that starts to connect with aspects of the weird psychology, which has got going at the moment, which is a narcissistic personality cult in our leaders, but also a narcissism so that everybody is encouraged to, you know, be on Instagram, to put themselves forward, to sell yourself, sell yourself, sell yourself and kind of, Mm. oh, it's wearying. And a lot of people, even if they do it, don't like doing it. And it's no surprise because it's bad for us. It's really bad for us to kind of, you know, to be constantly staring at a mirror or a screen, which is in effect a mirror because we're putting ourselves out there.
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's the first thing we did today when we started our conversation is we turned off our cameras.
1: Yes. And what a relief. Such a relief. Because it's It's immersively...
0: a okay to keep looking at yourself all day. No, it, isn't. It, it doesn't it doesn't do you any good whatsoever. It's
1: really unhealthy. You feel it. It's like you mm. you, you know, and young people feel it really badly when they kind of, you know, the daughter of a friend of mine was she was just getting really upset with the amount of social media that she felt compelled to do. Mm. And she 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 really really summed it up for me once. She said um, she said, the, the trouble is from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep I feel judged all the time mm, this God. is not good this is not good
0: mm,
1: but so yeah that's not for a falling of, you know, brain no it's not good for any of us but that sense of connection that that we try and make the connections between what's happening to you know the waters in the river why what's happening in the pages of the daily mail what's happening in terms of what are the deep strands yeah. in culture that have led us here and the converse of these things what are the things that that, that do take us to better places is good communication is good writing is true reporting and true as mm-hmm. in the whole truth and nothing but the truth the whole truth and a sense Going back of to those absolute
0: um, values again that we've been yes, isn't it? a little bit uncomfortable with for a while but i think we're we're really feeling the lack now
1: yeah like honesty <laughs> and respect <laughs> and compassion um, Compassion—that's a good one. Yeah, you know, it's like how everybody needs to be treated and how everything needs to be treated.
0: Mm. So, I want to ask you about a final thing, perhaps to end on a slightly lighter note, even. But I loved the part in your book where, unable to travel, you took an imaginary trip to Prague. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: yeah, oh yeah. No, that was—I <laughs> really enjoyed that. I decided that um, that I, I. I got a commission from a brilliant magazine called Inc, I N Q U E. And I said um, that I wanted to go to Prague because I've never been. Mm. And also because I thought my father might be there. And then I had to say, obviously, kind of, you know, it being lockdown, <laughs> that it wasn't either legal or possible to go to Prague. But what I was going to do was instead of flying there, which is obviously impossible and anyway bad. That I thought I would ride there on a horse with no name called Herbie, <laughs> and so I borrowed the idea of Herbie for a month, and then entirely in my imagination, with the help of of, of Google, I um, went to Prague and uh, and I was looking for my father because my mother had said he was once seen and uh, she had gone there with him to a cafe. In a bookshop behind Wenceslas Square. So, because my father was looking for basically Czech beer and Czech sausages, and my mother was more of a kind of is more of a white wine and salad kind of person, that <laughs> she agreed to go to the sausage and beer place. And I thought somewhere, probably hidden inside the pint of beer, that's hidden inside the cafe, that's hidden inside a bookshop, that's hidden behind Wenceslas Square, will be my father. And he wasn't there, but I did find him in the Illusion Museum of Prague. <laughs> The whole yeah. thing was was a gorgeous illusion and I got my travel expenses paid because <laughs> I asked the editor, I asked the editor to cover my travel expenses. I said the difficult thing is going to be stabling Herbie all the way to Prague, so across Germany. So I said, if he could send Herbie a picture of Rossinante, whose Don Quixote's horse, then that would admirably cover cover my travel expenses. And he did. Bless him. <laughs> but I think so I think you also found your dad in this sort of sense of
0: the surreal in this in this yeah. playfulness and it just struck me as this incredible way to reconnect like both on a global scale but also on a personal scale like you you did end up traveling Finding with it. him yeah
1: Well, yes, because that was the odd thing is that, you know, that that what I ended up doing in looking for him in a city that I'd never been to and he had, I actually felt that I could kind of walk around it and imagine it through his eyes. He um, trained as an architect and he was really obsessed with buildings. So he would go somewhere and it would be like there would be, let's say, an elephant walking down the street and a drain pipe. Everybody in the world would notice the elephant except my father. He... Be getting his camera out and saying to my mother, Well, good lord, do you see how that drain pipe is joined at that particular (laughs) angle? Just so it reaches right over the drain there, and the whole world would be going, (laughs) Yeah, I know the whole world would be saying, There's an elephant. So, um, but yeah, so I did, you know, it was quite good because I could kind of, you know, I could go looking at everything through his eyes, and it was surreal. He did have a very surreal streak.
0: I love it. Well, Jay, thank you so much. It's been lovely travelling with you. Uh, it's been so
1: lovely to sort you. <laughs> Bless you. Sorry about me, Rance. Never mind. There we are.
0: <laughs> well, my dear old dog, she's not very old. She's only three. She seems like an old soul to me. He's trotting behind me today. She's in a squirrel. I had to take her to the vets yesterday because she wasn't very well, but she's very much recovered now. But while I was there, she shook like a little leaf, and I had to hold on to her and tell her everything was okay. I hate that part of pet ownership fact that you can't transmit to them that some of the things you do are genuinely for their own good, even if they seem so cruel, (sighs) it made me think of the conversation I had with Jay somehow, I suppose really about the way that everything circles grief at the moment. When we talk about the environment When we talk about our people So many of whom we lost over the last few years When we talk about the griefs we project forward Into a future we don't know yet I had a gardener come to my house last week to prune my green gauge tree which has grown so out of control over the summer and I wanted someone to do it properly rather than me hacking at it and of course winter is the best time to prune a tree because it's dormant so as he was doing that he Trimmed back my neighbour's beautiful ash tree a little that hangs overhangs our garden, and I'd already raked up all its leaves a few weeks before and used them to mulch my garden. And he said he saw the first signs of ash dieback in it, and he said he'd tapped its roots and they were hollow already and I felt this incredible wave of grief come over me not just for that tree but for all the beautiful trees we're in the process of losing great big trees that shade our gardens which are all passing this terrible disease from one to another and we'll lose them we already lost elms when I was a child and now the ashes are going too I suppose the question I'm leaving with today is how do we make space to grieve for the things that we don't have a pattern for grieving for Jay talked about having to grieve her father without access to ritual. And I think there's a lot of things in this life that we're grieving without really understanding our grief or having an outlet for it or being able to really voice it. And of course that becomes a part of the question of how we come back together again because grief is a very individual experience but also a very collective one and maybe it holds a key for us this is one of the ways we can join again one of the ways we can come back together Thanks for listening. I'll see you very soon. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for being here to explore how we live now. To share your comments, questions or answers, go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail. We'll be compiling the best ones into an end of season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes, and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at CatherineMay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes.